Well, for about 33 years, I guess, I have been telling congregations it's good to be here and good to see you, but that, uh, that kind of an introduction has taken on a new meaning here in the last few weeks, and I am really glad to see you, and I am just proud to announce tonight that none of you look like cameras, and I am glad for that, and glad that you uh, decided to be here tonight. It's uh, kind of wondering what kind of a crowd we would have, and I know that there are some who have not yet ventured out. In fact, at uh, Woodstock, we have not even begun to meet on Wednesday nights yet, and we've only met on Sundays for now two, two weeks, I believe. But uh, it's certainly our prayer that we can get back to some degree of normalcy and that we can all uh, be together again. When Kyle, is Kyle here, by the way? I haven't even seen Kyle yet. He might be somewhere else tonight. But when he asked me uh, what I would like to speak on in the Minor Prophets, I said, well, I guess it's kind of obvious uh, which one I would take. And I, like the prophet before me, I will say that I'm not one nor the son of one. My father's here tonight, and he can attest to that fact. But Amos is a great, great book, a great, great prophet. And if it's okay with you, we can treat this as a, uh, as a class instead of a sermon. You know the only difference between a sermon and a class, right? A class is if you decide to talk. If you don't talk, we'll have a sermon, but I'm going to leave it open. If you have any uh, comments or questions, we would covet those. So please feel free to make uh, any comments. The book of Amos, which is may be the earliest of all the prophetic writings, depending on when you date Joel and Obadiah, uh, is preserved to us uh, down to this time, and it consists of nine chapters. Amos wrote in the year 755 B.C., which would be approximately 34 years before the northern tribes of Israel would be taken into Assyrian captivity. The theme that runs throughout the whole book is one against social injustices. And that was prevailing in northern Israel during the time of its king, Jeroboam number two. Now you recall when the uh, kingdom divided uh, initially, uh, Jeroboam the first was the king over Israel and Rehoboam was the king of the south. This isn't the same Jeroboam. This was a little bit later. And um, God, Amos says throughout this book, will surely punish any nation that practices injustice. And when we think of that word, when we think of that concept, it is a legal term, it's a legal word, and it... it um, it's a kissing cousin, if you will, to the idea or to the word good. Do you remember on one occasion when uh, the ruler came to Jesus and he called him good master? Remember how Jesus answered him? He said, why do you call me good? There is only one good and that is God. And many have taken that verse and misused it to, uh, to teach that Jesus was saying that he wasn't good because only God is good and in the minds of that person you know Jesus was not God but that's not what Jesus was saying at all he was saying to the ruler do you realize since you've called me good 
you've called me God because there's only one good and that's God. And see, that was the problem in his whole ministry, wasn't it? That's why the Jews put him on the cross. Because he claimed to be the Son of God, which in the Jewish mind, the Son of another was not thought of as someone not equal, but they were in that family. So don't think that when the Jews or uh, whoever would refer to Jesus uh, as the Son of God, they weren't saying that he was any less God, they were putting him in the same family. And so um, when we think of good and we think of justice, what is good? Who is the founder of good? You know, we use that word often, don't we? Oh, this is good, this is not good. Uh, I mean, how many times have we said that? God is the standard of good, and He's also the standard of what is just and what justice is. And you know, in this life, we strive the very best that we can for law and order, and we cry out always for justice. Well, this was a problem in the northern kingdom during the reign of Jeroboam and during the prophetic work of Amos. Amos was a burden bearer. Not only was he a burden bearer, but that's what the name Amos means. And as Amos works, he was a prophet from the south that went north to, proph to prophesy. And that's another way that, uh, that I can prove that this is not me either, because I'm a Yankee who came south, so just the opposite. But he was from the little town, the little region of Tekoa, which was about 10 miles south of Jerusalem. He made his living by raising sheep and dressing, caring for sycamore trees. And when his produce was ready for market, he would go into the towns and he lived near the border of Israel. And so he would cross over the border and he would go into the towns to sell his produce from where he lived in the south. Well, his journeys took him through the country districts and, and he observed how the poorer people were being mistreated. It wasn't the fact that there was a dichotomy between uh, the well-to-do folks and the not-so-well-to-do folks, but how the well-to-do folks were treating the not-so-well-to-do folks. He saw lots of injustices. And so, uh, after having observed this, a Amos was deeply moved, and like Jeremiah, he had a fire in his bones where he had to speak against it. And in the Old Testament, in the countries of the Old Testament, most people, and this even held true when uh, uh, Babylon and Greece and Rome ruled the world, these people were not monotheistic. They were polytheistic. And if you ever wonder why from the very beginning of Scripture to the very end, there's always an emphasis on there is one God. You know, sometimes living in a society, I would venture to say, you and I, even, even if we didn't grow up in the church, 
But we've always had a concept of one worldwide God. Most people in Bible times did not believe in one God. All of these nations were polytheists. Remember what Paul experienced when he went into Athens in Acts chapter 17? And he saw all these idols. Oh my goodness. To every God imaginable. Well, that wasn't unique just in Greco-Roman times. That was the case throughout Scripture. And in the days of Amos, every country had its God. In fact, the Jews thought what? Oh, Yahweh is just the God of Israel. We don't need to take God's gospel to the world. It's for us. It's for the God of Israel. You know, the God of whatever nation, you know, that's none of our business. But what Amos is going to prophesy is that there is one God over all. What did the Egyptians think at the very beginning of the Bible? What were the ten plagues all about? That targeted uh, ten of the Egyptian gods. And God told Moses, you go down and tell them that the God of the, of the Hebrews is the only God. And Pharaoh can either choose to bow his knee or he will be forced to bow his knee. And so it is with all people of all time. And that's what the scriptures teach. There is one God. Just as there's one Savior and one Spirit and one faith, and one baptism. One God and Father who is above all, through all, and in you all. And that's why in the early chapters of Amos, he's saying for three transgressions and for four, and he names eight different nations. The first four have already received their punishment. The last two were Judah and Israel. It's interesting, all but Israel, the country to whom Amos is prophesying, all receive similar punishments. But Israel would receive a worse punishment. Now I have a question, and here's where the sermon ends and the class begins. That's your cue, all right? Why do you suppose that Israel was punished worse than the other nations? I want to tell you so bad, but I'm biting my tongue. Because they knew better. Where more is given, more responsibility is required why will you and I suffer a greater punishment if we are lost than the ones that never heard of Jesus Christ? Because we had more opportunity. And so it was with Israel of old and Amos's prophecy. Um, the opposition of the priests toward Amos. Remember uh, the priesthood the priesthood. 
The Old Testament provided a priest, a high priest, right? And the Levitical priesthood. And what do we know about that priesthood throughout the uh, time of the Old Testament? Were they a sort filled with character? They had many issues, didn't they? You know what their main issue was? And let me give you a hint, class. Let me, give you, let, let me ask a question and give you a hint to the answer. When Jesus dealt with the Pharisees, not just the Pharisees, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the priests and the elders, what was the Lord's main issue with these groups of religious leaders of the Jews? What was the problem? Was the problem the fact that they wanted to keep the law of Moses faithfully or strictly? Was that the problem? In uh, evangelical writings, you know, from those that write that it really doesn't matter how you worship, it's all just ritual anyway, and, and they take what the Lord said to the religious leaders, and because the Lord would say, and God would say through Amos, listen, your ritualistic worship makes me sick. And so they take that to mean that all law, that all shades of anything that, that smacks of a formal patternistic, if I can say that bad word, uh, worship is, is, is not what the Lord is uh, dealing with. Um, was that the problem with the Pharisees? What was the problem? Their heart. That's right. Listen, why any time in the Old Testament when the Lord says, hey, your sacrifices make me sick, your worship makes me sick? It's because the heart wasn't right. The Lord commanded the sacrifices. He commanded the worship. God has always, in every dispensation, set the pattern for worship. And God expects us to hold to the pattern. But, there's a big problem. The pattern does make no difference if the heart is not right. That's why the Lord would say, hey, you've got a problem with a brother? Go make it right before you come and offer your gift, before you come to worship. And I hope that it can't be said of any of us in this auditorium room tonight that we should not come to worship because we are not coming in a heartfelt way in a non-hypocritical way. That doesn't mean that we have to be void of all sin. None of us can come that way. I mean, none of us would ever be able to worship if we came that way, or if we had to come that way. But you know, there is a difference in living in obstinate, non-caring sin, I'm going to have it my way, and then coming to worship 
than coming as one that says, Lord, I, I know I've got some issues. I know I've got my struggles and I'm, I'm doing my very best. I'm walking in the light. You see, those sins are covered. As long as you're fighting, you're faithful. It's when you give up the fight and you surmise, well, you know, we all have our problems. This is mine and I'm going to go right on and, and ignore it and not deal with it. That's the kind of worship that God cannot accept. And this is the kind of worship that was prevalent during the days of Amos. And it was coming from the upper crest. It was coming from the elitists of this nation of Israel. They were oppressing the poor, and they were thinking, because God has blessed me physically, then I have his blessing overall, that I have his approval. You know, there are a lot of rich people that God has blessed physically that are atheists. I mean, even one of the songs we sing, which song says, uh, is it tempted and tried? And we see people that uh, don't even believe in God. Why are they blessed, you know, year after year and that idea? Well, this was God's people during the time of Amos. They were blessed physically. Amos is uh, prophesying during a time of great, great prosperity. And they were thinking, hey, our God has blessed us so much, he must approve of us. Do you ever wonder why when the Lord talks about riches in the New Testament, it's never good? You ever wonder why he met a lawyer and it was never good? Do you ever wonder why these things happen? Because the love of money is the root of all evil. Well, the opposition of the priest toward Amos was because Amos was threatening their livelihood. You know, because if the ritualistic worship doesn't go on, the priests don't get paid. So they're not so much interested in the spirituality of the people as is seen inherently in the very priesthood itself because you had most priests that weren't even qualified serving as priests. And so they are saying, Amos, do not prophesy to Israel anymore and they escorted him out of Israel. They would not listen. Well, as Amos pondered the situation that was prevailing in the land, he began to have dreams and visions. You know, dreams and visions were uh, miraculous ways in the Bible where God disseminated his will to the prophet or to those having the dreams and visions. Remember what Joel prophesied about the latter day, the day of Pentecost? Your, your, your sons, your daughters, your old men and women, they would dream dreams. They would, during the miraculous time, that was the case. And by the way, dreams today have not been proven, uh, especially by the scripture or even scientifically, to have any basis in... Uh, future seances and, and the like. But here, 
Amos is uh, pondering the situation, and, and he had three dreams. Well, he probably had more, but three were recorded anyway. And the first one was about a plumb line. And it was a man measuring a wall that was bulging, and he was measuring the wall with a plumb line. The plumb line, the standard. The wall was Israel. They were bulging. Now, it's interesting because the, the play on words here by the Holy Spirit uh, had a dual meaning. You know, when you bulge, there is the idea that you are prospering. You know, before our uh, health craze society, most kings that ruled over countries were plump. Well, they were plump for a reason. They thought that fat meant health. But it certainly meant prosperity. They were bulging, you see. So, Israel was bulging, you know, they were prospering that way, but also a bulge in a wall means what? It's getting ready to come down. And Israel was getting ready to come down. Because of their miscomprehension of their riches. Well, a second vision that Amos had, and we're going to get into the application of this. The second vision that Amos had was of summer fruit. Summer fruit. I had someone send me a picture the other day of sea fruit and asked me if I like sea fruit. I said, yes, I love fruit. I love sea fruit. Well, as soon as fruit, sea fruit or otherwise, ripens, and you see that beautiful bowl of fruit as at, when it's at its best, what happens in just a few days after it's at its best? It begins to spoil. It begins to rot. And so Amos is having this vision of Israel, and they look like a bowl of fruit. Oh, they're prosperous, but they're getting ready to rot. And then the third vision is one in which Amos sees a swarm of locusts about to devour the produce and the prosperity of the land. And the vision is also a warning of that which lies ahead. The locusts are coming. Locusts play a prominent part in the Bible, don't they? Locusts was one of the plagues on Egypt. In Joel's book, there was a, a swarm of, of locusts. Well, same here in Amos. So after a time, Amos reaches this point where he could no longer keep quiet about his dreams. Like Jeremiah having the fire in the bones, and every preacher experiences this in, uh, in his time in preaching, there are certain lessons at certain times where he feels compelled. Yeah, now's the time. This has to be done. So Amos has this, uh, this, this feeling, and he's addressing a group of people who have gathered to a place of worship, worship, how they were doing. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 15? They honor me with their lips, but where's their heart? Far from me. Same way here. 
and they are worshiping at a place called the Bethel Sanctuary. Sanctuary. What does that word mean? We sing about that. Yeah. Yeah, it's the holy place. We sing, O Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary. Good song. We're not asking the Lord to prepare this auditorium as the sanctuary. But in the Old Testament, the holy place was a physical building. Their sanctuary was a physical room. But the kingdom of God is within each of us. God's sanctuary is within us. But this was the place of their worship. It was called the Bethel Sanctuary. And he, Amos, declares that God has a message for them, and they are not going to like it. This was the message. Are you ready? I hate, I despise your feasts. Well, Lord, didn't you ordain the feasts? Yes. I cannot stand your assemblies. Well, Lord, didn't you establish worship time? Yeah. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I reject them. Well, Lord, didn't you advise us to offer those as well? Yes. I will not accept them. And while we're on the subject, away with your songs. I don't even want to hear your singing. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Yes, brothers, instrumental music was alive and well in temple worship under the law. Not so much in the synagogues. Remember, synagogue worship started in Babylonian captivity about 135 years later, after Israel went into captivity, Babylon took the southern uh, tribes into captivity, and that's where they established synagogues. And even today, in, in our time, Jewish folks still have the synagogues. And if they are Orthodox Jews, they still will not use instrumental music. But in the temple worship, they did. It was not only uh, uh, desired, it was commanded by God. That's what Psalm 150 is all about. Praise Him with the harps, praise Him with the trumpets, praise Him with... And so the Lord's saying, now away with it all. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river, like righteousness, a never-failing stream. Here's the concept of the theme of the book. Justice and good and obedience to God. Did you bring me to me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? In other words, for naught? Yes, I commanded these, but you are distorting them because your heart is not right. And that's when Amos penned these famous words, of which we even sing today. Not as much now as, as I remember singing this song when I was younger. Careless soul, why will you linger, wandering from the fold of God? Hear you not the invitation? Oh, prepare to meet thy God. 
Amos is saying, Israel, prepare to meet God because judgment is right around the corner. And you're going to lose it all and you're going into captivity. And many of you will not return. You see, there weren't the great returns from Assyrian captivity as there were from Babylonian captivity. But you know what? Did you notice in the Bible after Babylonian captivity, no one of God's people ever worshipped idols anymore? Well, the coming downfall and the utter collapse of the northern kingdom are the two major themes of the book of Amos. All right. Now, what I would like to do, since we don't have time to exegete nine chapters, and I'm sure you don't want to stick around that long, I want to take just, since we've set the background of the book, this is what it's about, this is the message of Amos. I want us to take just a few of the prominent passages, and I want to take those passages and apply them to us. What is the message now, right? Can't have a lesson. Okay, this is becoming a sermon, so I can't have a sermon without a take-home message, right? Here's that part. The book opens up, and I think this is the first great lesson that we see in the book. God uses ordinary people to accomplish His will. Have you ever wondered why God's faithful people at first are nobodies? Do you ever wonder why Paul said, not many mighty, not many noble are called? Do you wonder why not many presidents and movie stars and athletes and people of means and reputation are in his church. You ever wonder why? Do you ever wonder why the people that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11, the, the hall of fame of faith there, are basically nobodies? Do you ever wonder why he chose Israel to begin with, Hebrew slaves? God wants to show his work through the nobodies of this life. That's why not many mighty and noble are called. That's why you and I have answered the call. But if we're going to answer the call, we've got to take the gospel. We've got to do it. Because the celebrities aren't going to do it. And God's not going to tap anybody on the shoulder and start talking to them and, and do it directly from heaven. We've got to do it. Just as Amos decided, just as Isaiah, right? And we sing Isaiah's song too. Here am I. Send me. When you get that fire in your bones, when you get that zeal to take God's will, then you know what? More than likely your heart's going to be right. That's the key to Christianity, really, is promulgating it. It's telling about it. And another song we sing so well, tell me the old, old story, I love to hear it. Seeking the lost, kindly entreating, you see. This is what Amos was doing, but Amos was a nobody. 
But now, more than 2,500 years later, we're reading his words. And before this time, nobody knew about him. The second major point. Uh, in Amos chapter 1 and verse 3, God says, I will not turn away punishment. Not from his people and not from the world. And that's why it's so important that we understand we need our sins covered by the blood of Christ so we don't have to face them again. But just, the, just because of the fact you are a member of God's people does not punch your ticket to heaven. Major theme, not only in Amos, that's a theme throughout Scripture, right? God is not going to take mercy on us just because we have decided to cast lots with the people of God, but we need to make sure as we're in the people of God that the blood keeps being applied. Those iniquities God promises He will never remember. And that's the joy of Christianity. But you see someone that comes to the assemblies and tries to live the Christian life without that consistent heart can plan to prepare for the same judgment as Israel. I will not turn away punishment of Damascus, of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, of Ammon, of Moab, of Judah, and of Israel and of the Church of Christ today. I did not ask, what is the time that I need to stop? I'm keeping my eye peeled on the clock. Um, so we're going to have to turn this into a class sometime because someone's going to have to tell me when to stop. Eight o'clock, okay. The cows of Bashan. Even today, there are people that talk, you know, perhaps not even familiar uh, and sometimes used in a joking way about the cows of Bashan, uh, the kine, K-I-N-E, of Bashan. Uh, Amos referred to them, and they said, listen, you are going to go into captivity like cows burrowing through a fence. You're not going to go out graciously as a cow would do through a well-manicured gate of his owner. You are going to run out like a herd. The Assyrians are going to come in and they're just going to round you up and it's going to be a, a mass of chaos. You have had the opportunity in the next place to return unto me. You know, it's amazing to me. Pharaoh, God hardened Pharaoh's heart, the Bible says, right? What does that mean? Does that mean that God took away Pharaoh's free will? Not at all. He had ten chances to repent. And you know, that is going to be probably the worst thing about being lost is having that mental imagery of how many times we've had to repent and we kept turning it away. And this is the lesson that Amos was teaching Israel. How many times 
has this lesson come to you, yet you have not returned unto God. God says in Amos chapter 4, I have given you, I have given you everything that you wanted of bread, of rain, everything, yet you have not returned unto me. So then, the next great message, as we've already referenced, prepare to meet God. You know, the only reason this world is still standing is because people are still repenting. And in some nations, they're doing that in great numbers. The Lord's church is booming in India. Perhaps India is the great reason today why the world is still standing. But the message of prepare to meet God is, again, not just a message of Amos. It's a prominent message in Amos, but it's a message throughout Scripture. Prepare to, how do you prepare? It doesn't just happen haphazardly. Men and women in every generation have spurned the Creator. And they're still ignoring Him today. Even when God moved drastically, as He did in Sodom and Gomorrah, men still refuse to repent. We never know when the final warning comes. But we don't have to know when the final warning comes. We just need to be prepared. We need to have those lamps trimmed. We need to have oil in the lamps because the bridegroom cometh, cometh in a time when we don't know. The message of Amos goes on and one of the prominent themes is seek me and you will live. What did Jesus say? In Matthew 6, 33. Seek first the kingdom of God. What are you seeking first in your life? You know, it's, it's, it's not a gray area with God. You know, it may be a gray area. Sometimes, you know, even ourselves, we have a, a hard time, you know, ascertaining. You know, what are we seeking first in life, really, truly? Not what the ideal is, but what is it actually? God says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. All these things that we emphasize, overemphasize, they're going to be added to you. Don't worry about those things. Amos said in chapter 5, beginning at verse 4, seek me and you will live. Seek the Lord and he will make the seven stars and Orion open to you. He will call for the waters of the sea and pour them out as great blessings. Seek the Lord first. Hate evil and love good. That's how we do that. But what is good? It's the standard that God has set. Amos 5, beginning at verse 14. Seek good and not evil so you can live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. The day of the Lord. Interesting phrase in all of Scripture. And it's used extensively. I wish I would have counted how many times, but I didn't, I didn't do that. Peter talks about the day of the Lord. Remember, the second coming and what's going to happen, the events that will take place on, on that great day. But there's a day of the Lord that uh, Amos mentions, and when the people in the audience hear the day of the Lord, you know how the audience is hearing it? not as Amos is delivering it. You know, sometimes that's the case, even today. 
You know, sometimes people hear my message in a way that I haven't intended it at all. But good hearers understand it. You know, those that come to worship with good hearts, they have their mind exercised to be able to discern between good and evil. Well, the people in Amos' day did not have such an exercised mind. And so what would happen here, he would be talking about the great day of the Lord is coming. The Lord is going to visit Israel. And you know what these proud, pompous people thought? Wow, that's going to be a great time. Look at how the Lord has blessed us physically. We must be earning his favor. And when he comes, it's going to be a great time. Yes, because they thought Amos was some kind of a nut. Amos, don't you see? And even the Jewish leaders thought this in Jesus' time. Remember the, the blind man? Remember the blind man? Do you know what the religious leaders thought? They were Calvinists before John Calvin ever, ever came to the earth. Remember what they said? Who sinned, this man or his parents, that he should be born blind? Why is it that the people of God always think, hey, if I am suffering, God must be zapping me. He must be punished. I must have sinned some great sin because I can't seem to break the mold and get out of this, you know, this, these terrible times. And so the religious leaders in Jesus, they thought the same thing. They thought that the blind man was a sinner because he was blind. Because of his unfortunate lot, he must have been a sinner. Well, they thought the opposite. Well, if I've been blessed physically, God must be you know, showering his approval on me. And that's how they were hearing Amos' message as he was talking about the great day of the Lord. But this is what Amos said when he brought that lesson to its conclusion in Amos chapter 5, beginning in verse 18. Woe unto you that desire the day of the Lord. To what end is it for you? The day of the Lord is not light, it's darkness. As if a man did flee from a lion, and a bear met him. Or he leaned his hand on the wall, and the serpent bit him. That was the day of the Lord of Amos. And it's interesting when you look at these different days of the Lord in the different contexts of the Bible. For some, it means deliverance, and it will be a good day. To others, it means destruction and damnation, and a bad day. And we sing that as well, don't we? There's a great day coming, and there's a sad day coming. Same day, same events, and we want to make sure that we approach God with a sincere heart, not with a perfect heart, with a sincere, faithful heart, and it will be a good day. What does it mean to be faithful? Trying to live perfectly and knowing you can't. If you're doing that, you're faithful. You're fighting the good fight of faith. And as long as you're fighting, you're not lost. If you're fighting sincerely. The plan of salvation, summed up just like that. It's really that simple. Have you ever heard the phrase, fiddling while Rome burns? Do you know where that phrase comes from? 
Yes, who said it? I heard it. Nero. Nero. Remember when Rome was burning in AD 64? And, uh, you know, Nero was an idiot. He really was. And he burned Rome, and, and he tried to do it um, underhandedly. And, and when he was uh, getting questioned about it, he blamed it on the Christians. And uh, secular accounts tell us that while Rome was burning, he was sitting there making music. Well, woe unto them that are at ease in Zion. Sound familiar? Amos chapter 6. Those that chant to the sound of the vial and invent to themselves instruments of music like David. And yes, I know many of our brethren go to this passage to say that uh, instruments of music were not played in temple worship because they invented instruments. What was the, is the context worship here, folks? Not at all. Not at all. This context was the luxurious lifestyle that was being emphasized. That's what they were seeking first, above living for God first. And you know, when you think about music, what do you think about? Many times, eat, drinking, and be merry. And we're, you know, we have weddings, we, we play music of, of joy. And uh, they were playing music when they should have been, if they're playing music at all, it should have been music of mourning. Right? There's a time for uh, parties and there, there's a time for mourning. And the wise man knows the difference. But they were using instruments in a time when they should have been sad and be preparing to meet God and they were having a party. That's the context in which this verse is, is used. Well, self-delusion is another very important theme in this book. Self-delusion. You know, we know the ideal, don't we? And we want to believe the very best of ourselves. You know, that's why when coming to the kingdom of God, we must come as little children. We must come humbly. Because if we come with a degree of pride, then really when we self-assess, we're not doing that adequately, accurately. And Amos is telling his audience, listen, self-delusion is fatal. If you are not interpreting the gospel correctly, or you're ignoring parts of it, or you're clipping some of it out, don't be fooled. Paul says in the Galatian letter, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that he's going to reap. If he reaps that which is good, he's going to sow life everlasting, or he's going to reap life everlasting. If he sows to the world, then he will reap eternal destruction. What makes a prophet? What made Amos' message true? and significant, and not something just to be cast aside and ignored as the people were, were doing to him. The word of the Lord turns 
a man into a godly one. A prophet would supernaturally see the will of God clearly as he was being guided by God, as other men of that day could not. A prophet not only foretells, he foretells. That's why we have no living prophets today, because there's no foretelling going on. Lots of foretelling. We are foretelling here tonight. That's only half the work of a prophet. There's no foretelling going on tonight. We only know the future as God decides to reveal it in His Word. Amaziah said to uh, Amos, O thou prophet, flee away, prophesy not again anymore. You say, prophesy not against Israel. And Amos looked Amaziah right in the eye, and he said, Your sons and your daughters will die by the sword, and your land will be divided and given to another. That basket of summer fruit that Amos saw was now beginning to rot, and it would not look pretty. In Amos chapter 8, the Lord said through Amos, I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in a clear day. And I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. Many believe in a dual fulfillment of this passage. Not only would this take place in the days of Amos, but it would also take place in the days of the Lord. When the, new, when the sun was turned dark at midday. And God was casting aside Judaism at that time. And that's when the feasts and the Sabbath and all would be done away. The sword of the Lord, it is a real thing. Behold the goodness and the severity of God. The sifting and the dividing of nations. Is that not a prominent theme in Scripture? That's what will happen in the final judgment. The sheep and the goats. And in Amos chapter 9, in the last chapter, the last major theme of this prophecy. Have you put yourselves in the audience of Amos Day? This would be a tough lesson to hear. If I were giving this directly to you today because of your lifestyle... Would you let me stay to finish the lesson? They didn't let Amos stay. The last lesson, Amos chapter 9 and verse 11. In that day will I raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen, and I will build it as in the light of the days of old. When Israel was at its glory during the days of David and Solomon, remember when the queen of Sheba told Solomon when she beheld his kingdom, the half has not even been told about the glory of this kingdom? Because David had a heart after God's heart, even in, with some mistakes. Solomon had a heart 
like his father David and like the God of heaven. But some evil influences took that away to some degree. Hopefully the book of Ecclesiastes is Solomon's uh, penitence and we will see Solomon. I hope so. But from that time after Solomon and the kingdom divided, it was nothing but idolatry and excess. And God, like the days of the judges, remember the cycle of the judges? The word of God would be given. They would receive the blessing of God. They would be faithful for a time. They'd fall away. They would go into captivity. God would raise a judge. Fifteen times that happened in the 300-year period of the judges. And basically, that's what is happening during the prophets. But the prophecy is that Amos was remembering how King David inspired the people to worship the tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant. It was inaugurated with joyous music and harps and psalteries and timbrels and great pomp and circumstance. And the prophecy is that God is going to raise the tabernacle of God again. He didn't do it in the lives of Israel. He didn't do it in the lives of Judah. He didn't do it in the lives of the, or during the time of the Grecian Empire, the in-between period of the Testaments. But as Daniel prophesied, he would do it in the days of the Roman period. And specifically, it happened on the day of Pentecost, when it was raised again. And you and I now are a part of the tabernacle of God, of the church of His Son. And these lessons have been handed down to us not to ignore like God's people did of old during the days of Amos, but they're to be put in our hearts and remembered and lived. Because remember, just because you are a part of God's people doesn't mean that every person is going to be covered by the blood. That's going to be... Uh, judged on an individual basis. I will raise up the tabernacle. You know, every prophecy, when you look at the prophets, they all gave a message of doom, but at the end of their books, they all gave the message of hope that it can be restored. It can be good again. Here is the prophetic treasure completely overlooked many times. Because many people that believe that the kingdom is not here and it's going to be established when Jesus comes back in a physical way and he's going to establish a physical kingdom, listen, anytime I teach the Old Testament, at the end of the lesson, I want to give an invitation. Okay, It's not the typical invitation that we're accustomed to, uh, for uh, salvation or for uh, penitence. But I'm going to give you an invitation to find something, if you can, in the Old Testament. Find one prophecy where the prophet is prophesying of the second coming of Jesus Christ. I've given that invitation for a lot of years. You know, we hear a lot of um, 
prophetical lessons from the evangelical world taken from the Old Testament talking about how the tabernacle of God is going to be established when the Lord comes again and Jesus is coming back to sit on David's throne in Jerusalem. And he's going to reign for a thousand years on this earth. There's going to be a period of tribulation. You're going to go through the rapture and on and on. But for all of that to stand and be true, and it's utterly false, by the way, the Left Behind series by LaHaye, and I mean, that, that, they're t it's totally in contrast to Scripture. But in order for that system to be true, the prophets have to be pointing to the second coming of Christ. I would like for one of those passages to be proved, proven. Listen, the prophets are pointing to Pentecost. They point to the first coming, the first advent of Jesus Christ, not to the second one. And when you put the prophets in that context, no, no one's going to have a second chance when the Lord comes again. You see, that's the fallacy. That's the, that's the main problem of that idea. It's a second chance theory that the Bible just does not teach. And so as we apply these lessons, let's not apply them with the understanding that the kingdom is not already here and it's something yet future and God has established the church as kind of a, a stopgap until the kingdom gets established. That's not what Amos is saying in the last part of his prophetic book. But the message comes to us loud and clear. O spiritual Israel, prepare to meet your God. Thank you for your uh, kind attention tonight. I appreciate it. I see my time is up, and it is straight up 8 o'clock. I rarely do that, Mike. I rarely can hit it right on the minute, but tonight we did it. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for not looking like a camera. This has been uh, uh, a treat for me, and I hope that, uh, that most of the lessons that we hear can be live just like tonight. Uh, anything else that we need to